All right, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, I, I want you to follow along with us today. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, and we're coming to the end of Matthew. This will be the last sermon in Matthew 27. We'll move that to Matthew 28 next week, and we're getting to the end. I think we started Matthew in somewhere around 2017, 2018, and here we are in 2022, and we'll finally end the book of Matthew. And here today, at the end of Matthew 27, we come to maybe the most overlooked passage in all of the Gospels. We come to the burial of Jesus Christ. I don't know if anybody here has heard a sermon on the burial of Christ, but when you look at it, it, it almost seems boring, ordinary. You want to kind of say, ah, it ain't that big a deal to talk about the burial. They put him in the tomb, they leave him. Let's, let's, let's head to Sunday morning when he's resurrected, right? We spend a lot of time on the cross. We spend a lot of time on the resurrection. It's almost like the burial is, is very overlooked. But I want to show you today, and I think you'll get it by the time we're done, that the burial is just as amazing as the crucifixion and the resurrection. I know you don't believe me, but by the time we're done, I think you will. Uh, so I titled the sermon today, The Amazing Burial of Jesus Christ. And I think that you'll say as we go, I hope you will. I hope I'll look out while I'm preaching and I hear some of you saying, wow, that's amazing. I doubt I will, but I, I think you'll be saying it in your minds. So let's stand together. I'm going to read to you about the, the, the amazing burial of Jesus, starting in verse 57. And I think this is an amazing thing. So starting in verse 57 of, of Matthew 27, it says, And when the evening was come, there, was, there, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own tomb, his own new tomb, which, which had, he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher, and then he departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher, kind of keeping an eye on it. And then and now the next day, which would be Saturday, that, that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last error shall be worse than the first. So Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher secure, sure, and sealing the stone and setting a watch. So there you have the amazing burial of Jesus, and we're just a few verses away from the resurrection. But I want you to look at these verses today, and I want you to say, wow, that's amazing. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll study these verses. Father, we thank you for your word. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. We believe that every single word is from the mind of Almighty God, the brilliance of God. And we believe it's all inspired. We believe it's all inerrant. We believe it's all worthy of our attention. So God, as we come to this passage that's often overlooked, that's looked at as, as ordinary, boring. I think it's amazing. I think it's good for us. I think we need to hear a sermon today about your burial, your son's burial. How you buried your own son. So teach us today. Help me to teach these things well. And by your Spirit, please, enlighten our minds and place these words in our heart. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If I was to ask you this question, what is your favorite part of the life of Jesus Christ? What would your answer be? If you look at the life of Jesus, 33 years, and you would say, what's the one thing 
that stands out above all the others? What's the one thing that comes to your mind after we have finished 27 chapters and we've now gotten to the, to the burial, we're almost to the end. What's the one thing about the life of Jesus that you would say stands out above all the others? I'm sure there are a lot of answers that you could give. We could go back to, to, the, to the very beginning and, and look at the birth of Jesus and say, wow, the birth of Jesus was amazing. And, and it was. Uh, how God put things together to, to bring Jesus into this world where He was truly man and, and truly God. The, the Son of God. An amazing birth. You can look at the life of Jesus. His, his perfect life where He never said a thing wrong, uh, anything wrong or did anything wrong or thought a wrong thought. You could say that the, the perfect life of Jesus was amazing. And, and it was. You could go to a, a, a number of miracles. More than we could even count. The raising of the dead, the, the giving sight to the blind, the, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk. You could say, that's amazing. And it is. You could go to his teaching where they say, no man ever spake like Jesus, and they marveled at what he said. That's, that's amazing. You go to his death, and we, we studied his death for ten weeks, and it's, it's an, an amazing death. Nobody ever died like Jesus. We could even go to the resurrection next week or the ascension just a, a few weeks after that. Or even His return that Jesus is coming back again one day and say, that is amazing. And it is. But I would be willing to guess that not of one of you would say, I think the most amazing thing about Jesus' life was His burial. I'm sure that that was not on anybody's mind. We don't celebrate it. We don't preach series on it. We don't have a, a week-long celebration of, of the burial of Jesus. There's not a day. We even celebrate the Passion Week and nobody even talks about Saturday, the day He's in the tomb. But I'm going to say that the burial is just as amazing as, as, amazing as all these things that we just mentioned. The burial is just as, as amazing as His birth, as His perfect life, as all the miracles that He performed and the, the things that He taught, His death, resurrection, ascension, and return. The burial is amazing. It's not an afterthought. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. It's pictured in Jonah where it says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so must the Son of Man be in the ground. It's recorded in all four Gospels. It's seen in baptism. All of you who have been baptized have been buried with Christ and risen to walk in newness of life. It was preached by the church. 1 Corinthians 15. Just kind of give you an idea. Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the Gospel." which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, but which also you're saved. The Gospel is, is what saves you. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I have also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day. Paul places the burial in the top three places of the Gospel. As first importance, so it is amazing, it is miraculous, it is important, it is a, a big deal. And I want to show you that today. I'm sure nobody has ever said about a burial ever before that it is amazing. But this burial is amazing. So let's look at it. I want to give you three points as we look at this amazing burial of Jesus. And I want to start with this new man that we get to hear about in verse 57. I want to show you the amazing courage of this disciple. The amazing courage by the time we get done, I'm going to look at you and I want you all to say, wow, that's amazing. The amazing courage. It says in verse 57, and I'm going to stop at that first phrase, when the evening was come, Jesus died about 3 o'clock. And He now has to be, according to God's timetable, 
for things to work out where he would be in the tomb for three days, he has to be in a, a tomb by six o'clock. We're on a time push here. He's, he dies at three. He has to be in a tomb by, by six o'clock. And he's, he's been crucified as a, as a criminal and they don't give them a proper burial. So what was going to have to happen is usually they take him down, any criminal, and they, they, they wouldn't put him in a, in a tomb. They throw him in the trash heap and let him be burned or eaten by vultures. So now he needs to be buried in the next three hours. Who's going to do that? Not his disciples. They're off running and scared somewhere. Not the women around the, 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 the cross. They can't do that. They can't pick him off the cross and, and carry him and, and find a tomb in three hours. In order for Jesus to get into a tomb in the next three hours, it's going to take somebody very rich and very powerful. Look what happens next. Watch this. He, he has three hours to get in the tomb. He needs a rich and powerful man to make this happen. It's like God is in heaven and working everything out according to His will. Enter Joseph of Arimathea. Look at this. <laughs> Watch. And there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph. I like that. Joseph of Arimathea. He's brand new. First time we've ever heard of him. The only time we've ever heard of him. It's like he was ordained by God from the foundation of the world to do this one thing. To get his son buried in the next three hours. This is amazing. I know you guys are sitting there saying, wow. Who is this guy? Luke 23 says this about him. He was a good man and just. Mark 15 says he's a powerful man. A prominent member of the council. He's one of the 70 in the Sanhedrin. Which is the most powerful body of religious people in the world. And not just one of the 70. He's a prominent member. This is like the, the, the house and the senate put together. This is the most powerful group in, in, the, in, the, in the nation and he's one of the top dogs in that group. And Matthew 27 says he's a rich man. So he's a good man, a powerful man, a, a rich man. It's been said that he's maybe even the richest man in Jerusalem. This guy has money flowing everywhere. And at the end of verse 57 it says about him, and this is my, the best part, he also himself was Jesus' disciple. He was a disciple of Jesus. That word disciple should describe every single one of us in this room today. Disciple means a student. Disciple means a learner. In those days, you would attach yourself to someone who was a teacher and you would follow them everywhere they went and you would sit at their feet as they taught and you would do whatever they said. If they said go to the left, you went to the left. If they said go to the right, you go to the right. Whatever the teacher said, the student's going to do. So Joseph of Arimathea had attached himself to Jesus so that he would follow Jesus around. And whatever Jesus said, he would believe. And whatever Jesus said, he would do. If Jesus said go to the left, he went to the left. If Jesus said go to the right, he'd go to the right. He was a disciple of Jesus. In this time, you didn't call them Christians. You called them disciples. You walk around and say, who do you follow? Who's your teacher? That defined who you were in life. In those days, it could be, you say, I'm a follower of Aristotle or, or Plato or Socrates. But this Joseph of Arimathea had called himself a student of Jesus. Doing whatever his teacher told him to do. He is a true believer. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. He's a prominent man. He's a rich man. But more important than any of those things, he is a follower of Jesus. You are a lot of things in life. I'm a lot of things. I'm a father. I'm a husband. 
I'm a great athlete. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a pound wildcat. Yeah. I mean, all kinds of things. And those things will be said about me. Who is that guy? He's this. He's this. He's this. He's this. All these things could be laid out and said about me and about you. But the most important thing about us is that we are a disciple of Jesus Christ. We follow Him. We do what He says. If He says go to the left, we go to the left. If He says go to the right, we go to the right. He says believe this, do this. We are a follower of Jesus Christ. We do whatever He says. So Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. You said if He was a disciple of Jesus, why we've never heard of Him? <laughs> this is good. Because in John 19 it says that He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he was, get this, following Jesus from afar. He was following Jesus and, and doing whatever Jesus told him to do and believing whatever Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the Son of God, and he believed that. But he was doing it very privately because he knew he'd get in trouble if anybody else knew. He would lose the power. He would lose the prominence. He would lose the money. He would lose family. He'd lose everything if they knew that he was following Jesus. So the only people that knew he followed Jesus may have been his wife and his kids at home. He was a secret follower of Jesus. May it not be said of us that we are secret disciples. That nobody knows about it but my family. Nobody knows about it but the people in church on Sunday. And when I go out there, the people say, I don't know if they're a Christian or not. I don't know if they follow Christ or not. This guy was scared to death that he would lose something if they found out he was a follower of Jesus. Up to this point, he had been a private follower because he feared what they'd do to him. I think there's a lot of private followers of Jesus today. Scared to death of what they'll say to you if, you, if they know you're a follower of Jesus. And here we go. Up to this point, he'd been silent. And now, Mark 15 says that he gathered up courage. You can go look at that verse in Mark 15. It's, it's great. It says, and he got bold. It means here at this moment, he says, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going, here in this moment, he, he went to Pilate. I mean, this is it. Gathering courage. And before he goes in to see Pilate, that's how powerful he was. He's going to see the, the most powerful man in Israel. He gets a, a, a meeting with Pilate. And as he's getting ready to go in the door, he's saying, this is it. i got to get the courage. Come on, Joseph. Come on. You can do this. Let's go. Let's go. As soon as I tell him I want the body, everybody's going to know I'm a follower of Jesus. Him walking in this door and asking for the body of Jesus is going to take great courage. He knows he's going to lose everything. So he walks in. You see that? He went to Pilate. Verse 58. And he begged for the body of Jesus. At that time, if nobody claimed it, again, they'd throw it in the trash heap and vultures would eat it and, 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 and they'd set it on fire just to get rid of it. So he walks in and begs Pilate, please give me the body of Jesus. Please let me have it. I can't fathom the, the thought of his body being thrown in the trash. I can't fathom the thought of vultures eating the body of my Savior. I can't fathom the, the thought of it being burned. Please give me the body. Pilate and all the people in the room are sitting there saying, that guy loves Jesus. That guy follows Jesus. He's one of the prominent people in our community. He's powerful. He's rich. He's got it all. And now in this moment, he's willing to lose it all and come out and let everybody know he follows Jesus. This is his coming out party. 
This is him stepping into the spotlight. As soon as he opens his mouth, everybody knows what courage, what bravery, what boldness. This is not the ideal time either. They just killed Jesus. They're threatening to kill anybody that follows him. And he's willing to step out. He's willing to speak up. Here in this moment, he mans up. Here in this moment, he opens his mouth. Here in this moment, Joseph clearly identifies himself as a follower of Jesus. This is amazing courage. Amazing courage. Now I ask you today, we live in a culture where it's not the time to identify with Jesus. We live in a culture where they want to silence us. They want to make us be private Christians. And we think that's enough. We are, I can be a Christian at home. I can be a Christian at church. I don't need to do it at school. I don't need to do it at work. I don't need to do it on the ball field. I don't need to do it all these other places. I can just do it in private. I can keep myself silent. We live in a world who hates what Christians believe. The Jesus, uh, Jesus of the Bible is not popular. Everybody loves Jesus until you, until you start quoting Him. But now more than ever, it's time for true disciples of Jesus to step up and to speak up and to not be ashamed to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's going to take, and we may not be there yet, but it's going to take amazing courage for Christians in the coming days. You need to know that. You need to be willing to lose it all for Jesus. You need to be willing to lose friends. You need to be willing to lose uh, jobs. You need to be willing to lose prestige. You need to be willing to lose power. You need to be willing to lose influence. You need to be willing to, to get kicked off social media. You need to be willing to lose everything because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. It's going to take amazing courage. And I, and I say this, and maybe not even for us, but especially for our children. They're going to need more courage in their life than we've ever needed. We lived in a day when it was pretty acceptable to go to church and to believe what Jesus taught. But as they get older and they get into a world that's going to be so much worse than the world we live in, they are going to need courage to stand up and to speak out for Jesus Christ. And where are they going to learn that from? Where do you think courage comes from? Courage is more contagious than COVID. You say, what do you mean by that? If you're around somebody courageous, it'll stir you up to be courageous. If my son's going to be courageous in the days ahead, he's going to have to learn it from his father. If my daughter's going to be courageous in the days ahead, she's going to have to learn it from her father. How does my dad act in public? How does my dad act on social media? Is he ashamed of Jesus? If he's not ashamed of Jesus, I don't need to be ashamed of Jesus. If he's willing to speak up for Jesus and to stand for what Jesus taught, then I'm not going to be either. You need to be courageous. Our children need to be courageous. Courageous. We need a generation of people who are not ashamed of Jesus Christ. This is amazing courage of Joseph. Do not be a secret disciple. Number two, if that's the amazing courage and I want to encourage you to be courageous. I want our church to be courageous. I want the courage that maybe I have and that I have rubbed, that I've rubbed and got off from, from, got from somebody else to rub off on you. I want us to be courageous and not to be ashamed of Jesus. So do not be a secret disciple. Second, I want to show you the amazing cost 
of the burial. Pilate says yes. Joseph begged for the body. Went to Pilate, verse 58, and begged for the body of Jesus. I don't know what time it is now. How long do you think it took him to go from the cross where Jesus died at 3 o'clock? Now he has to walk across Jerusalem to see Pilate, to get inside to see Pilate in, in, in his throne room there, to, to beg Pilate for the body. And now Pilate says, okay, you can have it. And now he's got to go back and, and get the body. I'm, I'm just, I don't know how long the walk was, but I'm sure it took him about an hour. We're looking at about 4 o'clock now. Somewhere around that. So Pilate says yes. Tom's clock's ticking. Pilate delivers the body and says over to, 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 to Joseph. And Pilate commanded the body to be given. Give it to him. Let him have it. What a time crunch here. Verse 59. And Joseph takes the body. You see that? Walks back to Golgotha. I don't know if the body's still on the cross or if they've taken it down. But he walks back to Golgotha and he gets the body of Jesus. And he begins to prepare it. You see that in verse 59 when Joseph had taken the body. It's now his. It's your job to take care of it now. This follower of Jesus, this one who loved Jesus, now has the body of Jesus in his hands. And he begins to prepare it. And this is no small task. He's going to have to have help. I think it's, it's amazing. Maybe you guys will do wow to this one. John 19 says that he has help from Nicodemus. You guys remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3 by night because he didn't want anybody to see him coming to Jesus to talk to him. He was scared to death of what they'd do. Nicodemus came and comes and says, how, how, how can I be saved? And he says, you must be born again. And he, and he walks away and he's not saved. And, and Nicodemus talks about him one more time. And Nicodemus has, has become a secret disciple himself. And now Nicodemus and Joseph go and take the body off the cross together. They lay it down and they begin to repair it. Joseph and Nicodemus take the nails out of his hands. Joseph and Nicodemus take the crown off his head. Joseph and Nicodemus cover his naked body. Joseph and Nicodemus carry Jesus' body to the tomb. And Joseph and Nicodemus begin to prepare his body. It says in John 19 that Joseph brought the linen cloth. You think he had to go home and get that? Walk into his house and say, Honey, I need the linen cloths. Linen cloth is not cheap. This is some of the best stuff that you can have. They say in his death, Jesus wore nicer clothes than he ever had in his life. Give me the linen cloth. His wife says, what for? He says, I'm burying Jesus. She says, okay. John 19 says, Nicodemus brings the alloys and the myrrh, the spices. A hundred pounds of it. So Nicodemus, again, he's prominent. He's rich. He goes and gets a hundred pounds worth of, of, of spices and alloy and myrrh to, to put on the body of Jesus. So they're going to wrap him and they're, they're bringing it all together and then cover it in, in spices so it doesn't stink. They're bringing the best they have. He brought the linen. He brought the, the alloy and the myrrh and the spices. This is, this is expensive stuff. The best that they have. Nicodemus goes home and says, I need all that we got, 100 pounds. His wife says, okay, here. And they bring it to the body. And I, I, I read this week about how they would wrap a, wrap a body. They would embalm. They'd wrap it. Take the cloth and, and wrap one arm. And then put some, some of that alloy and myrrh on it so it wouldn't stink. They'd take and wrap the other arm. And they'd wrap the legs. And they'd begin to wrap the torso. And they'd wrap it all around and wrap around the head, putting a napkin over their face. 
Joseph and Nicodemus sitting there doing that very carefully, very wonderfully, giving everything that they had. This is laborious work with great precision and care, putting in time and effort and care and love. Can you imagine the tears as they care for the body of their Savior? This was a God-ordained task from before the foundation of the world that these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, these rich and powerful men, would give everything that they had to make sure that Jesus gets the burial He deserves. That He doesn't go to the trash heap, throne, but that He gets a kingly burial. And why would they do this? I thought about this. Why in the world with Joseph and Nicodemus. Don't you think they had better things to do? Do you think they did a good job? I mean, think about that. Do you think they did, just went half about it? Or do you think they did the very best that they could possibly do in wrapping the body of Jesus? I think that they did an all-out job. I think it was the best that they could do. I think you, you'll never find a body better wrapped and a body, body smelling better than the body of Jesus as He's going into the tomb. I think they gave everything that they had. I think they served Jesus well. I think they, they gave in time. They gave in money. They gave in love. They gave in care. They, they served Jesus in that moment unlike anybody has ever served Him. You think they did it because they had to? I don't think Christians should ever do anything out of guilt. That's just me. You can guilt people into doing a lot of things. You can. And some preachers are, are big on guilt. Do this. And they make you feel real guilty about it. Be at church or you're going to be cursed. And people walk into church like, oh, I have to be here. Do you think that's how Joseph and, and Nicodemus did it? Oh, have to wrap this body. It's... It's Friday. I got things I need to be doing today. I got places I got to be today. I can't believe I'm I'm doing this. I, this is a this is the worst thing ever. He's bloody. He's nasty. This is awful. I can't believe I've been asked to do this. I think they loved every second of it. Serving Jesus in a way that nobody ever has. We don't do things with a motivation of guilt. We do things out of the motivation of grace that He has done so much for me that the least I can do is, is wrap His body. He just died on a cross for me. He took all of my sins upon His shoulders. He was punished on, on my behalf. He became sin who knew no sin for me. The least I can do is give Him the best burial that He can have. That's grace. Knowing what He did motivates me to do what I do. You don't come to church out of guilt. You know why you come to church? Because God has been so good to me. I come to worship Him and to serve Him and to give Him my very best. You don't guilt people. You don't guilt people and say, you need to be working on the playground next week. <sighs> yes, I get to work on a playground this week. I get to work in Mills of Love. I get to be at church. It's not I have to. It's I get to. Don't you get that? I don't want you to come to church because you have to. My kids have to come to church right now. They have to. They have to. And if they got up in the morning and said, Dad, I ain't going. <laughs> Try me. 
This is... But when they turn 18 and they, and they move out, and mom and dad ain't making them anymore, I hope they know so much about the grace of God that they say, I get to go to church. I get to serve. I get to give. Don't ever let anybody guilt you into giving to the church. You give to the church because He has given so much to you. That's why you give. We let grace motivate us, not guilt. And that's why these guys are doing this. They're not doing it because they have to. They're doing it because they want to. They're doing it because they love Jesus. It's, it's the, the least they can do is give Him a proper burial. This is an amazing thing. They're giving Him the burial of a, of a king. And after they're done, let's move on. When Joseph had taken the body and he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, the best that money can buy. The best cloth that money can buy. The best perfume that money can buy. He now is going to lay him in the best tomb that money can buy. That's why I call this the amazing cost. They're sparing no cost. They're giving him the, the, the very best. Look at this. I, I think this is, you guys should say, amazing. Look at this. They laid the body, it, in his own. Who's his own? Joseph's. Joseph, Joseph is so rich that he gets to be buried like a king. He went and bought his own tomb. Nobody did that then. And you say his own tomb, what's his, his own new tomb? It's brand spanking new. It's like a new car coming off the lot. Nobody has, it's the first mile you ever done that? Not me. The first mile ever been driven. You get there and say, here's one. It's brand new. Nobody's ever been laid in it before. I can tell you stories about what they do. They take and wrap these bodies, put them in a tomb, perfume on them, and as they would decay and the body would decay, it would become nothing but bones. And then they'd go in there and take the bones out and they'd put it in a little box and you take it home. And they'd bring another body and they'd lay it in that same spot. And after a year, that body would decay and it'd be bones. And they'd bring it out and they'd give it to the family as bones. So they're using tombs over and over and over. And a lot of those were used tombs. Somebody else had laid there before. But Jesus gets Joseph's tomb. Nobody had ever laid there before. Brand new. Had new tomb spell. <laughs> you don't want old tomb smell. <laughs> that, that's pretty good. New tomb smell. And it wasn't like it was a cave that was already there. This is how rich he was. He took people, this is before this, he took people to the side of a rock, mountain. Told him, he said, I want that to be my tomb. Well, they said, there's no, there's no cave there. He said, hewn it out. And they'd sit and these people serving him, how rich he was. They'd dig it out. He's got a brand new tomb. Nobody's ever laid him before. They, they dig the big, a big hole in there and make it a cave and, and put places for the bodies to lay on each side so the man and his wife and his kids could all be buried there together and then the stone would be rolled away. I'm sure he went to his wife and said, give me the best linen that we have. What are you doing? Burying Jesus? Where are you going to put him? Put him where, where, where I was going to lay. Why? He deserves the best that money can buy. He deserves all that I can give him. So he gives him 
the best. He takes him to his own tomb. I'm giving you what's mine. He didn't lay him in his kid's spots or his wife's spot. He said, give him my spot. Use all the linen, all the spices, and now the tomb. This is a very expensive burial. Isaiah 53 said two contrasting things as a prophecy of Jesus. It said he would hang with sinners and he'd be buried like a rich man. You get that? Isaiah 53, and you guys didn't say, and I didn't see anybody do, wow. <laughs> there you go. He would hang with sinners, thieves, and he'd be buried as a rich man. Reading that, you would say, impossible. No way. And now, he was hanging with sinners, the man on the middle cross, and he's being buried in the tomb of a rich man. The prophecy is being fulfilled. Everything God said would happen is happening. Like God in heaven working everything out according to His will. And Jesus gets laid in that tomb before the clock strikes six. This is amazing. God is making sure that everything is working out on schedule. Exactly at the time He wants it to work out. And not only that, God is making sure that His Son gets the burial that He deserves. Philippians 2 speaks about the condescension of Jesus. That He who was in heaven, enthroned and worshipped by angels, unimaginable glory in heaven, has stepped down to the earth and, and, and become man. And not only did He become man, but He, he lived as a, as a servant. And not only as a servant, but He, he went to the death. And not only death, but death of the cross. And, and it says in Philippians 2 that, that when He got down as low as He could, the death on the cross, that now in that moment, God is going to highly exalt Him. And the burial is the first step back up. That His Son gets the burial of a king. It's amazing. God says, you've treated my son terribly for 33 years. But now in this moment, my son gets the burial that he deserves. Wow. And then they rolled the stone. Look at that. Let's keep going. And he rolled a great stone. You know what a great stone is? It's a big stone. <laughs> and he rolled a big stone over the door. The women couldn't do that. He had to have Joseph, Nicodemus, maybe some servants to roll that thing into place. And then he departed. Do you think Jesus was really dead? There's a lot of people that says that he just passed out and he's unconscious. I think Joseph and I think Nicodemus, I think those servants, I think the, 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 all that wrapping and all that time spent, they knew Jesus was really dead. So they lay him in his tomb. And I love verse 61. I'm sitting there thinking, why in the world is that here? I almost skipped it last week. Last week we looked at verse 58. After Jesus died. And it says, and among which, standing there at the cross, as Jesus died, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's children. I'm sitting there, I preached that last week, and I said, okay, the women are there. Remember I said that? 
Because I have to preach every word of every verse of every of every book. So we're going through that. And I said that. I said the women are there at the cross. And then we get to this and, and they're at the burial. And it says there's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And they're sitting there too. There they were. at the. And I'm trying not to spend a lot of time on this. But I think it deserves a little bit of attention. And then you go down to... Look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 28. You see this? And the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Everywhere we turn, these ladies are there. And I'm thinking, that has to be something. There they are at the cross when He died. There they are at the burial. There they are on Sunday morning when He is risen from the dead. What's up with these women? Why are they there? Why are they mentioned? And this is just a sidebar. But these are the most faithful women you'll ever see. Every... Everywhere he goes. Peter said, I'll follow you no matter what. Wherever you go, I'm going. Even unto death. And as soon as they start crucifying Jesus, Peter runs away. And who's left there? That followed Jesus everywhere he went. These women were there at the cross. These women were there. It says they were just sitting over against the sepulcher like they're looking at it. Just hanging out. Where else could they go? He was everything to them. And everywhere He went, they followed. There's something to be said for just showing up. Sometimes that's all it takes to be faithful. That's an application. And sometimes it's the women who always show up. And the men who sit at home. In most churches today and throughout history, the men will sit at home and the churches are full of women who just show up. Putting men to shame. Sometimes that's all it takes. I made a post last week on Facebook that there's so many women mothers who show up to our church, my wife included, who are pulling five kids with them as they show up. And I asked Steph the other day, I said, when, how many sermons do you think you've listened to this year? And she said, I don't know how many, but I've been there every one. Sometimes being faithful is just showing up. You say, is church that important? Sometimes being faithful is just showing up. And these women keep popping up and showing up everywhere He goes. And if that's all you have to do is just show up. They don't do a whole lot. I mean, I think somebody, some commentators said they're in verse 61 watching Joseph and Nicodemus and saying they ain't doing that right. <laughs> we'll show up on Sunday and we'll make sure it's done right this time. <laughs> that could be the case. Look how sloppy they're doing that. Because on Sunday, they did bring perfume. They did bring oil and alloy. And they, they brought that with them. And they, Maybe they're going to do it right. But just they're just there. That's all it is. I love that. It's just, here they are. They're there. Here they are. They're there. At the cross. At the tomb. At the resurrection. I think even in, in, in the ascension in Acts chapter 1, they're there. Acts 2, the church begins. They're there. Everywhere you look, they're there. Just show up. That's faithfulness. Everywhere He goes, they go. I think Johnny told me one time that the, in sign language, this is, this is what it means to follow. I like it. 
That's Jesus. That's me. Everywhere he goes, I go. <laughs> Wherever he says to go, I go. That's what these women are doing. Just show up. And that's his burial. The amazing cost of the burial. Expensive. Beautiful. Went above and beyond. The ladies are there. There's no burial ever been like this burial. Amazing. Now let me show you number three. And we'll stop. I almost made this a sermon on its own, but I decided to, to do two sermons in one. Verse 62, I want to show you the amazing control of God. We've seen the amazing courage of the disciple, the amazing cost of the burial, now the amazing control of God. He said, just, just, just watch. Just see how God is working in verses 62 to 66. It says in verse 62, the next day, that would be Saturday. That's followed the day of preparation. The day of preparation would be Friday. Jesus is in the tomb at six o'clock on Friday. They, the next day would be Saturday. That would be the, the silent day where you don't know a whole lot about what's going on, but we know this is going on on that Saturday. Now the next day, that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together into Pilate. Now they've got a meeting with Pilate. We want to talk. Knock, knock, knock. Let us in. They go in. In verse 63, they say, Sir, we, uh, we, we kind of remember <laughs> uh, that when he was alive, the deceiver, the phony, that's what they call him, that he said that he was going to rise again in three days. So, we got a plan. We need you to give us security. We need a team. To keep the tomb secure. He says that in verse 64. So command that the tomb, the sepulcher, be made sure, secure. Up until the third day. We just need it until tomorrow. Give us some security until tomorrow. Let these guys guard this tomb. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. Those disciples who were scaredy cats, <laughs> running and hiding, those guys are going to show up and steal the body. Let his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. And then, this is, that would be worse than anything. So they ask for security. And Pilate says, okay, you have a watch. You have a security. Go your way and make the tomb as secure as possible. Make it as firm. That's what the word sure is. Make it as secure. Make it as firm. Make it as fastened. Do everything you can to make that tomb as secure as it possibly can. Make it like Fort Knox where nobody could get in it. I want this thing to be... Uh, un nobody could get in this thing. I want guards out front. I want a, the, the, the stone rolled away. I want ours in place. I want a, a seal put there that has the Roman seal on it so nobody would touch it unless they die. This place is to be the most secure place in Jerusalem until tomorrow. That's what he says. Ain't nobody getting in. But somebody's coming out. You see, you see what they're doing? Ain't nobody getting in. They're making it impossible to get in. <laughs> it would take an act of God <laughs> to get out of that tomb. They are locking that thing up. Roman soldiers, official seal, a rope, a stone. Ain't nobody getting in. They've made it. And their whole goal, the whole goal. I, I love how God is working this out. 
to bring evidence to the truth of the resurrection. They would have been better off saying, leave it open. <laughs> Don't put no guards, no seal, no stone. In that case, they could have said, yeah, they stole his body. But here, God is using them so that the resurrection will have the most proof. <laughs> this is so good. Their whole goal of putting that on there, it says that. So he won't, they won't fake a resurrection. The tomb is un, unbreakable. There's, there's no way. They've set the stage perfect. Everything is in place. Everything is ready for this huge miracle to come. So that there's no way they can say it was stolen. It had to be a resurrection. Nobody could get in. Only Jesus can get out. This, this shows God's amazing control over this burial. He has divinely orchestrated every single detail. It's almost like He's in heaven before the foundation of the world saying, I'm going to bury my son in the most extravagant, rich burial that anybody has ever had. He's going to have the finest of linen and the finest of spices and the finest of oils. And He's going to, have, he's going to be laid in, a, in the finest of tombs. And then when they bury Him, I want to make sure that everybody knows that He was resurrected. How? I'm going to have the biggest of stones rolled in front of it. Nobody can move that thing. It'll take a team to come in there. And then I want Roman soldiers standing in front of the door. I want them sitting there with spears and, and swords so that nobody would come and fight a Roman soldier. And then seal it up saying You're, you will die if you touch this thing. He's working it all. Every single detail. So that everybody will know His body wasn't stolen. His body was resurrected. That's the whole point. That's why the, the, this burial is so amazing. God is, is working everything out because, get this, and this is the main point of the sermon, I saved it to the end. A real burial, like He had, proves that there was a real death. Because there's so many people who say that He just passed out. A real burial proves a real death. And a real burial proves a real resurrection. Without the burial, you don't have a real death and you don't have a real resurrection. The burial is just as important, just as amazing, just as big a deal as his death and his resurrection. You have to have the burial for either one of those to count. This is amazing. Verse 66, so they went and they made it secure and they sealed the stone and they set a watch. And now at the end of verse 66, we all wait. <laughs> From verse 66 to, to verse 1, there's nothing but darkness in the space. There's nothing but silence. There's nothing but hopelessness. But we all know Sunday's coming. We all know that God loves to get the last word. And He'll get the last word here. God takes the silence and the darkness and the hopelessness and the death and He brings about the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. I love that. Isn't the burial of Christ amazing? Now in closing, 
we'll all be buried one day. I've, I've been to so many burials that I couldn't even count how many. I've preached so many burials. I've been at the, the grave. And one day, I, every time I go, I say, one day that'll be me. And one day that'll be you. And they'll take great care, and they do. Every time I preach a burial, the, the funeral director will come up after I get done, and he'll, he'll say, uh, this is the end of our service, and, and now the body is left to our care, and we will do everything we can to care for the body in a way that you would want us to. And the family walks away, and the funeral director and his men all will take care of the body, and they'll lower it down, and they'll put dirt on top of it. They take great care in preparing the body. There's great care. There's great cost. Everybody gathers around the casket and they stand over it. And the pastor says a few final words. And I hope in that moment, I, I may preach some of y'all's burial. You may be. I hope you do. And when I die, you guys will be gathered around my casket. And when you do, when you're in that casket, I hope that whoever it is that preaches it, will be able to say that this person was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And everybody knew it. Was not ashamed. Was not shy. Was not secret. We know who he or she followed. I've been to way too many burials where instead of saying with great confidence this person was a follower of Jesus it was we don't really know I want every one of us here to be confident that we are followers of Jesus Christ I want everybody to know that we are followers of Jesus Christ that our faith is in Him and we follow Him and we do what He says and we're, we're like those women wherever He goes we go Whatever He says, we do. I hope we're all here today disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we are, if our faith is in Him and we are followers of Him, then I believe that a good pastor will read what I'm about to read. I've read this at so many gravesides, it's, it's, it's not funny. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. If you're a believer in Jesus, these are the most comforting words you'll ever hear at a graveside. But I would have not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe, and that's the key verse in this passage, verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and He rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And in that moment the dead in Christ shall rise first. Jesus isn't the only one who borrowed a tomb. If you are a believer in Christ, whatever casket or graveyard you go to, it's just borrowed because one day Jesus is coming back and you'll be coming out of that thing and you won't need it anymore. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Death doesn't get the last word. God gets the last word. 
It's the greatest news anybody could ever hear. But for this to be good news, you must believe in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must believe. Let me go back to the very beginning of the sermon. You guys ready for this? I planned this. You must believe that Jesus came into this world and was born of a virgin. You must believe that he lived a perfect life, that he never said a bad word, never thought a bad thought, never did a bad thing, that nobody could ever find a single fault in Jesus. You must believe that Jesus did miracles and that he taught like no man ever taught. You must believe that Jesus went to the cross and that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. You must believe that, that your sin was placed on his shoulders when he died on the cross and that the judgment of Almighty God fell on him instead of falling on you. You must believe that he was buried. You must believe that he was risen again on the third and glorious morning. You must believe that he ascended into heaven and that he is seated there right now at the right hand of the throne of God on high, waiting to return so that when He returns, the bodies of all the saints who have slept will arise and those who are left behind here will rise with them so that we'll all meet Jesus in the air and will forever be with Him. If you believe that, you have the greatest hope in the world. Do you believe in that Jesus? Not the Jesus that everybody throws out there, but the Jesus of the Bible. If you believe in that Jesus, then even in a grave, you have hope. Even in silence, hope. Darkness, hope. The worst of times, hope. Are you a follower of that Jesus? If you are, let the world know it. Don't be ashamed of it. You need to get on social media before this sermon even ends and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Unashamed. Hashtag. Wait till I get done. And if you're not, you need to be. If you're not a follower, you need to be. You need to decide today, now, in this moment, I am giving my life to Jesus Christ. Bow the knee. Confess Him as Lord. Follow Him everywhere He goes. And if you follow Him everywhere He goes, get this, you'll follow Him. Romans 6 says this. We follow Him in His death. We follow Him in burial. You say, what does that mean? We follow Him in death. We follow Him in burial. And if we do that, we'll follow Him in resurrection all the way to heaven one day. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I hope you'll look at this and say, that's amazing. Because this burial sets the stage for what we're going to look at next week. The amazing resurrection of Jesus. And because He died and was buried and resurrected, we will be too. Amazing. Amazing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the amazing burial. And I just uh, spent all week with my, my jaw on the floor amazed at what took place in this passage. And I pray that I was able to get just a little bit of it across to the people here today. That they would never look at the, your burial, the burial of your son, ever the same again. That every time they hear about the death, the burial, and the resurrection, they'll understand how important the burial is. And God, I know we left it here at the silence, and we left it here in the darkness, we left it here in the hopelessness of Jesus in the tomb. But I, I look forward to being back next Sunday. It'll be like Easter in July for us. We'll have a resurrection passage and a resurrection sermon. We'll sing resurrection songs. Oh, what a day that'll be. When we get to celebrate the greatest miracle ever. That he's alive.
that he conquered death, hell, and the grave. It's an amazing thing. And God, I pray if there's anybody in here today who's an unbeliever, they're not a true follower of Jesus, a disciple, that today would be the day that they say, I give my life to Jesus. What he says I'll do, where he says I'll go. Please, God, work in hearts with this today. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.